Welcome back to Playing Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. It's good to be back in the skies again and with some regions showing growth. Let's hope we're all aviating normally soon. This is episode 22 and we're going to hear more about an accident in the skies over India that was the final push in the drive to deploy traffic collision avoidance systems known as TCAS. Initially, though, we need to go back to the early days of commercial aviation in 1922. Unfortunately, the first collision between aircraft took place almost immediately as commercial aviation launched in the same year and early aviators were ignorant about each other's plans, altitude and track. They also spoke many different languages, which didn't help. It took another 70 years before a system was introduced to ensure separation that was automated and computerized. Before then, systems were developed that relied on accurate flying using the semicircular rules. The basic tenet is that when flying in a track between 0 and 179 degrees, or generally speaking easterly, your flight level or altitude must be odd, such as 030 or 050 and so on. But when you're on a track between 180 and 3590, generally speaking westerly, your flight level or altitude must be even, for example 18,000 feet, 16,000 feet and so on. There are other rules associated with this and whether you're flying IFVR or on instruments. That is supposed to reduce the chances of planes colliding, but it only works if the pilots are flying their planes at those levels. Sometimes pilots do break these levels and at other times instruments are faulty. So it was a foggy day on the 7th of April 1922 and a new commercial passenger company known as Daimler Hire Limited had taken possession of a post-World War I de Havilland DH-18A registration Golf Echo Alpha Whiskey Oscar from the British Air Ministry. Daimler Hire was planning to use the biplane for the Croydon to Paris route until larger planes could be introduced. The de Havilland was being flown by Lieutenant R.E. Duke and he was joined by what was known at the time as a boy's steward as he took off to pick up passengers waiting in France. Aviation has always been heavily influenced by the maritime industry. That's why we talk about speed in knots, for example, as well as the fly-to-the-right rule, or boys stewards. Meanwhile, across the channel, French company Compagnie de Grande Express Orient was operating a farm in F-60 Goliath, registration Foxtrot Golf Echo Alpha Delta, on a daily service from Le Bourget to Croydon. The Goliath was piloted by M. Miret, and departed from Le Bourget in France with three passengers and a mechanic as it turned towards Croydon in England. In those days, the planes flew incredibly low, at only 500 feet above ground, which in that part of Europe is no problem, as it's mainly flat, until they crossed the coast to fly over the ocean, which is even more flat. The Goliath was following the normal route in drizzle and fog at just under 500 feet, when it collided with a de Havilland around 110 kilometers north of Paris. The DH-18 lost a wing and its tail and spun straight into the ground, while the Goliath managed to limp onwards for a moment, then crashed shortly afterwards. Although people on the ground rushed to the scene, everyone on board had died, except for the boy's steward, who was badly injured. He was taken to the nearby village, but unfortunately succumbed to his injuries shortly afterwards. Following this accident, there was some discussion about air routes. There was also an agreement that radios had to be placed on board aeroplanes, although in those days they were cumbersome and heavy. That was the first, but unfortunately not the last, collision. By the 1950s, 13 collisions had taken place involving airliners, and authorities were mulling what to do about this challenge. It was the accident involving TWA Flight 2 and United Flight 718 on June 30, 1956, over the Grand Canyon that was the catalyst for change. 
A DC-7 and TWA Constellation collided at 21,000 feet over the Grand Canyon, mainly because both pilots had decided to deviate from their flight plans. Afterwards, investigators found that the TWA pilots were flying visually after receiving clearance from an air traffic controller. They were manoeuvring around clouds and did not see each other. All 128 passengers and crew on both planes died. The accident shocked the public and their disbelief was compounded by the antiquated manner in which the flights had been managed. People were starting to talk about space travel and the aviation industry couldn't avoid collisions on planet Earth. It all seemed incomprehensible. For example, the air traffic controller had not advised captains of both flights about the potential for a traffic conflict following the clearance he gave known as 1000 on top, even though he must have known of the possibility. 1000 on top meant flying 1,000 feet above the clouds. It was an IFR rule at the time and was sometimes allowed when separation restrictions that were normally applied by ATC could be temporarily suspended. That was usually linked to a need to avoid bad weather or turbulence. An aircraft cleared to operate 1,000 on top provides its own separation for other IFR aircraft and is especially useful when two aircraft are transitioning to or from VFR conditions above cloud layers. It was decided to stop using the 1,000 on top rule, which had clearly failed those 128 passengers and crew. Another problem at the time, and one which also had a bearing on a Saudi and Kazakh collision over India later, was the military control of airspace. In 1956, over American skies, control was split between the military and the Civil Aeronautics Administration, and neither spoke to the other in any coordinated way. That had to change. Eventually, the Federal Aviation Act of 1958 was passed, dissolving the CAA of the time and creating the Federal Aviation Agency, which was renamed the Federal Aviation Administration in 1966. The FAA was given total authority over American airspace, including military activity, and as procedures and ATC facilities were modernized, mid-air collisions gradually became less frequent. Still, there were other incidents and accidents, although overall safety improved. By the late 1970s, a new system known as the Traffic Collision Avoidance System, TCAS, was maturing and ready for testing. The way it works is that if there is a potential for a collision, the system alerts both sets of pilots and provides climb and descend instructions. Eventually, in 1981, Piedmont Airlines in California flew the first operational TCAS on a regularly scheduled flight with observers to validate the system, and it worked. However, things didn't move fast enough because five years later, in 1986, there was another mid-air collision, this time near Los Angeles, where a descending Aeromexico DC-9 hit a private airplane on the way into LAX. All aboard both planes died. The need for TCAS was more than obvious. To continue doing nothing would be criminally negligent. The FAA recognized the safety improvement offered by TCAS, mandating it for all airliners with more than 30 seats in 1993. Shortly afterwards in the US, TCAS became standard equipment in airliners and the risk of mid-air collision dropped dramatically. However, our main story proves that despite the best intentions, mistakes, carelessness and confusion can still lead to a deadly situation, particularly when pilots bust altitudes they've been assigned. And this is one of those stories. On the 12th of November 1996, a Saudi Arabian Airlines Boeing 747, which had just taken off from Delhi, en route to Dharan, collided with a Kazakhstani Airlines Illusion IL-76 en route from Chimkent to Delhi. 
The crash killed all 349 people on board both planes, making it the world's deadliest mid-air collision of all time and the deadliest aviation accident to take place in India. This was an example of a system that was used in a confusing way. The Saudi Arabian Airlines Boeing 747 registration hotel Zulu Alpha India Hotel was flying the first leg of a scheduled international Delhi Dharan Jeddah passenger service with 312 people on board. The Kazakhstan Airlines Illusion 76TD registration uniform November 76435 was on a charter service from Chimkent Airport to Delhi and it was known as Kaza 1907. The Saudi Boeing had left Delhi at 6.32 local time and was climbing while the Kazakh Aleutian was descending to land at Delhi. Both flights were listening out and taking commands from the approach controller. Saudi Captain Khalid al-Shubali was highly experienced, 45 years old, and he had logged almost 10,000 hours. He was joined by First Officer Nazir Khan and Flight Engineer Ahmed Idris on the Boeing flight deck. Kazakh Captain Alexander Cherapanov on board Kaza 1907 was also highly experienced with also close to 10,000 hours. The 44-year-old was assisted by First Officer Emek Zangarov, Flight Engineer Alexander Chuprov, Navigator Zanbek Arapov and Radio Operator Igor Rep. As we'll see, the restricted way in which Indian airspace was controlled with only one single corridor for commercial aviation instead of the usual two contributed to this crash. So Kazakh 1907, the Kazakh plane, was cleared to descend to 15,000 feet, 74 nautical miles from the beacon of Delhi Airport. Unfortunately, the Saudi plane Savar 763 was travelling on the same airway as Kaza 1907, but in the opposite direction. The Saudi plane was cleared to 14,000 feet, where it was to maintain altitude until the Kazakh plane passed, then to continue climbing to its cruising altitude. About eight minutes after the Saudi plane took off, Kaza 1907 reported having descended to its assigned altitude of 15,000 feet. The only problem was, it had not stopped descending and was lower at that point, at 14,500, and still descending. Trouble was brewing. According to the transcript, the following exchanges then took place between the tower and crew on board the two aircraft. The Kazakh plane said, Good evening, 1907, passing through 230 for 180, 74 miles from DBN, Delhi. Control tower answered, Descend 150, report reading. The Saudi plane said, Approaching 100. The control tower answered and said, Cleared 140. Moments later, the Saudi plane reported, Approaching level 140 for higher. The control tower said, Maintain level 140, stand by for higher. The control tower then reached out to the Kazakh plane and said, Kaza 1907 report distance from DPN. Kazakh replied, reached 150, 46 miles DPN, radial 270. The tower said, Roger, maintain 150, identify traffic 12 o'clock reciprocal. Saudi Boeing 747, 14 miles, report insight. The Kazakh plane replied, Kaza 1907 report how many miles? Control tower said, 14 miles now, Roger 1907. Then a few seconds later, the control tower said again, traffic in 13 miles, level 140. Kazakh answered, 1907. That was the final word from both aircrew to the ATC. When the controller called Kaza 1907 again, he received no reply. He then tried to radio the Saudi pilot and warn him of the danger, but it was already too late. The two aircraft had collided with the tail of Kaza 1907 slicing through the Saudi's left wing and horizontal stabilizer. The crippled Boeing quickly lost control 
It went into a rapidly descending spiral with fire trailing from the wing. The Boeing broke up before crashing into the ground at an extremely high speed of over 1,000 kilometers an hour. The Aleutian remained structurally intact as it entered a steady but rapid and uncontrolled descent until it also crashed in a field. Rescuers discovered four critically injured passengers from the Aleutian, but they all died soon afterwards. Remarkably, two passengers from the Saudi flight survived the crash, still strapped to their seats, only to die of internal injuries after a few hours. In the end, all 312 people on board Sabah 763 and all 37 people on board Kaza 1907 were killed. Captain Timothy Place, a pilot for the United States Air Force, was the sole eyewitness of the event. He was making an initial approach to Delhi in a Lockheed Starlifter when he saw what he said was a large cloud lit up with an orange glow, as he described it. The wreckage of the Saudi aircraft plunged into the ground near Dani village, while the Kazakh aircraft hit the ground near the village of Buraha outside Delhi. The 1996 crash was then investigated by the Lahoti Commission, headed by Delhi High Court Judge Ramesh Chandra Lahoti. Depositions were taken from the Air Traffic Controllers Guild and the two airliners about the crew and their experience. The flight data recorders were decoded by Kazakhstan Airlines under supervision of the Russians in Moscow. Saudi Airlines flight data recorders were supervised by English experts at Farnborough. After some debate, the cause was found to be the failure of Kazakhstan Airlines Flight 1907's pilot to follow ATC instructions. While all parties accepted this, there was a lot of dispute about whether the cause was due to cloud turbulence or communication challenges. The Commission determined from flight data recordings that the accident had been the fault of the Kazakhstan Illusion 76 commander, who had descended from the assigned altitude of 15,000 to 14,500 feet and subsequently 14,000 feet. The report said there had been a serious breach in operating procedure because of a lack of English language skills on the part of the Kazakhstani aircraft pilots. They did not know exactly what was going on and were relying entirely on their radio operator for communications with the ATC. However, the radio operator on an Aleutian did not have his own flight instrumentation and he had to look over the pilot's shoulders the whole time when reporting position and altitude. That would be comically funny if it wasn't so terminally catastrophic. Later, Kazakhstani officials disputed this and said it was not behind the cause and focused on the turbulence at the time. Both sets of planes had experienced turbulence inside a bank of cumulus clouds and the Kazakhstani said the pilots could not be expected to maintain altitude. However, American pilot Timothy Place said the turbulence was not enough to cause 2,000 feet errors and anyway, the Aleutian had been descending constantly and at around 500 feet per minute, hardly a situation of extreme turbulence. There was another can of worms opened up by this incident. Indian air controllers said the Kazakhstani pilots sometimes confused their calculations because they were accustomed to using meter altitudes and kilometer distances, while most other countries use feet and nautical miles, respectively, for aerial navigation. After the flight data was analyzed, it was also clear that the planes were actually on a course to pass extremely close and not collide until a few seconds from impact. But at the last moment, the Kazakhstani plane climbed slightly. This was because the radio operator of the Kazakhstan 1907 flight discovered only then that they were not at 15,000 feet and asked the pilot to climb as he peered over the senior pilot's shoulder. Had the instruments been easily accessible, the radio operator would have picked up the altitude error in real time and, as usual, there is that what-if question. Once the radio operator warned the air crew of the altitude error, the captain gave orders for full throttle 
and the plane climbed only to hit the oncoming Saudi Arabian plane seconds later. So many things went wrong causing this accident, but the shortcomings of both the Aleutian crew and Delhi approach was laid bare for all to see. Firstly, the ATC Guild denied turbulence could have been a major problem using meteorological reports from the time, although the collision took place inside a cloud. As I've said, this was substantiated by the affidavit of Captain Place, who was the commander of the Lockheed Starlifter. He said there was turbulence, but not the extent that it would cause 1,000-foot swoops. Secondly, Indira Gandhi International Airport at Delhi did not have secondary surveillance radar, which provides extra information such as the aircraft's identity and altitude. It does this by reading transponder signals. Delhi only had primary radar, which produces readings of distance and bearing but not altitude, so that the ATC had no way of knowing that the Kazakh plane was not holding at 14,000 feet. That was a major weakness considering India's extremely busy airspace and was, as they say, an accident waiting to happen. Thirdly, the airspace corridor over Delhi was dominated by the Indian Air Force, leaving very little room for civilian airspace around the Indian capital. It had only one corridor for departures and arrivals of civilian aircraft, and that was going to be a disaster for 349 passengers and crew. Most international airports separate departures and arrivals into different corridors, but not in India at the time. So the panel recommended immediate separation of inbound and outbound aircraft through the creation of air corridors. It also called for the installation of a secondary air traffic control radar for aircraft altitude data, as well as mandatory collision avoidance equipment on commercial aircraft operating in Indian airspace. TCAS had arrived. The Directorate General of Civil Aviation of India subsequently made it mandatory for all aircraft flying in and out of India to be equipped with an airborne collision avoidance system. This set a worldwide precedent for mandatory use of TCAS. So how exactly does TCAS work? This is an airborne collision avoidance system which must be fitted to all aircraft with a maximum takeoff mass or MTOM of over 5,700 kilograms or an aircraft licensed to carry more than 19 passengers. There are various types, TCAS-1 for aircraft with 10 to 30 passengers, TCAS-2 for aircraft with more than 30. ACAS-TCAS is based on secondary surveillance radar transponder signals but operates independently of ground-based equipment to provide advice to the pilot on potentially conflicting aircraft. CAS involves communication between all aircraft equipped with an appropriate transponder, provided, of course, the transponder is working. Each TCAS-equipped aircraft interrogates all other aircraft in a determined range about their position via the 1030 MHz radio frequency, and all other aircraft reply to interrogations via the 1090 MHz frequency. The TCAS system builds a three-dimensional map of aircraft in the airspace incorporating their range, altitude, and bearing. Then, by extrapolating current range and altitude difference to anticipated future values, it determines if a potential collision threat exists. This is the first step. Next step is to automatically negotiate a mutual avoidance maneuver. These are restricted to changes in altitude by modifying the climb or descent rates between the two aircraft. The air crews see a message that appears on their cockpit display while simultaneously a synthesized voice instruction is played. The instructions to the crew are straightforward. Here is an example of the various messages crew receive from TCAS. Adjust vertical speed. Adjust clear of conflict. Climb, 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 crossing, climb. Climb, crossing, climb. Climb, climb now. Descend, descend, descend. 
Descend now. Descend. Crossing. Descend. Descend. Crossing. Descend. Increase. Climb. Increase. Climb. Increase. Descent. Increase. Descent. Maintain vertical speed. Maintain. Maintain vertical speed. Crossing. Maintain. Monitor vertical speed. Monitor vertical speed. TCAS test. TCAS test. Pass. Traffic. 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 As we ramp up aviation recovery following the COVID pandemic, TCAS will continue playing a vital role, keeping us all safer in an extremely busy flying environment. Next episode, we'll take a look at flying boats, including the Imperial Airways ditching in 1937. Please head off to desmondlatham.blog for some pictures linked to this episode and updates from my other podcasts. If you're motivated, please rate the podcast on iTunes. If you've got ideas about other incidents we could cover, you're welcome to send me an email through the blog or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, aviate, navigate and communicate safely. Goodbye.